Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. There was a time, and it was not that long ago, when many people across the world, including those negotiating on both sides, thought that peace, peace was coming between Israelis and Palestinians. How far that time seems from today. With the horrors of October 7th inflicted by Hamas and the punishing bombardment of Gaza by the Israeli military, how should we remember that optimistic time of the Oslo peace process, aside from with heartbreak for everyone involved? Today, we'll be joined by two participants in a group conversation about that peace process assembled by The New York Times Magazine, as well as by journalist Emily Bazelon, who moderated it. What can we learn? Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. I haven't been able to sleep for nights knowing we were doing this show. I know how strongly many of you feel about the situation in Israel and Gaza. Anger, heartbreak, frustration, disbelief, helplessness, more anger. I do not anticipate that we'll be able to bring everyone in our community together today. It's not that kind of situation. Not after the October 7th attacks by Hamas, which left 1,200 dead in Israel, and then the Israeli military siege and bombing of Gaza, which has killed more than 14,000, including 10,000 women and children, and touched off what the UN called today an epic humanitarian catastrophe. Now today we're going to do our best to represent reality as it was during the previous period of hope, when Palestinians and Israelis were making progress towards an elusive peace together. Maybe we can better understand how the different participants in the ultimately failed process of the 1990s see their histories. Maybe those memories and interpretations can tell us something important about finding the way back from the bloodiest episode in this long conflict in many, many years. Here to help us to understand the buildup and breakdown of the most promising peace process between Israelis and Palestinians, we're joined by Emily Bazelon, who moderated a discussion for the New York Times Magazine, which was entitled, was peace ever possible? Welcome, Emily. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. We're also joined by two of the discussants in your group history. Omar Dejani is now a professor of law at the University of the Pacific. He was a senior legal advisor with the Palestine Liberation Organization's negotiation support unit during the late 1990s. Welcome, Omar. Thanks very much. It's good to be with you. Yeah. 
Good to have you. We're also joined by Ephraim Inbar, professor of political studies at bar University and president of the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security, also the author of Rabin and Israel's National Security. Welcome, Ephraim. Shalom from Jerusalem to all. Emily, um, thank you for joining us, Ephraim. Uh, Emily, you've done something really unusual, a kind of shared history with this piece, joining people together with different viewpoints. And especially on this issue, it's not something that we often see. I mean, why do you want to do it this way? Yeah, that's a great question. I have also been having lots of, you know, strong emotions pulled in many directions. Um, and I wanted people to talk to each other. I know that this history is c contested and that um, Israelis and Palestinians have different perspectives on it. And obviously, there's a range of perspectives within each of those groups. And so I just wanted to hear people talk across what have become, I think, really difficult divides and to kind of produce a group history lesson that I knew I would learn from. And I was hoping that, you know, readers and today listeners would also just benefit from hearing the different perspectives that people have about this fleeting moment in the 1990s when peace seemed possible. Mm -hmm. And of course, you do encounter things that people disagree on. But one of the fascinating things about the piece is that there actually is a large overlap of facts that people say, okay, this is pretty much what happened. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, that's one advantage of talking about history, right, is that um, in hindsight, some facts can become clearer. And I think what you see, especially in the early 1990s, is an opportunity to have dialogue, um, you know, and a hunger on both sides for bringing together um, the PLO and then eventually officials in the Israeli government to talk about how to talk about peace. That's really what emerges from the famous um, Oslo Accord that gets signed on the White House lawn in 1993. It's really a framework for trying to negotiate peace going forward. And then, of course, there are all kinds of cross signals and missed opportunities and flaws that emerge that derail the process. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't seem like overreach to say that this process really was the best chance at peace since the mid-century. I mean, is that right? I mean, Rabin and Arafat received the Nobel Peace Prize, right? Um, so for you, why was it important to focus on this moment? Well, I think that you're right. It's this sustained effort over seven years to try to negotiate, to sit down. Um, and I think there are lessons for today. You know, one lesson that I'm sure Omar and Ephraim will have thoughts about is the issue of having an interim agreement. The idea was that the parties were going to build trust by continuing to go negotiate over time. But instead, the opposite happened. There were breaches of the agreements on both sides, and I think that led to further distrust. And then there are these problems of um, asymmetry, where the Israelis, um, in a sense, have more power since they're the state negotiating with a people that doesn't have a state at that point. And that asymmetry produces dynamics that are difficult for both um for leaders on both sides to sell to their own publics, that was another thing that really emerged for me was that the, there was weak political support um, on both sides during much of this period. And so what I thought of as a failure of leadership is also about a kind of um, reticence and fear, I think, to some degree among both Israelis and Palestinians about how to move forward. Mm. 
Let's also talk a little bit, uh, and Omar, I'm going to bring you in first here, on the kind of conditions that allowed this process to even get started with the first Oslo Accord. Uh, you know, a few years before Oslo, there was the first Intifada. Maybe you can talk a little bit, Omar, about what it meant for the PLO and Arafat, who ended up exiled and, and watching from outside the territories. Sure. So I think it's important to bear in mind first the broader context, which is that in 1967, Israel occupies the West Bank and Gaza Strip, which were the remaining parts of what had been Palestine before 1948 that uh, were not occupied by Israel until that juncture. And so from 1967 until 1987, Palestinians live under a military occupation uh, that they experience as, as grinding, as disempowering, as marginalizing. And um, during that period, the PLO itself undergoes a transition um, from being based uh, in Jordan, being ousted from there, uh, heads to, they head to Lebanon, uh, they're ousted from there in, in a, uh, a, a civil war that is traumatic for all of the stakeholders, Lebanese, uh, Palestinian, and ultimately Israeli. And um, and then find their way over to, to Tunis, where the PLO... Um, is based in exile. And um, uh, in 1987, December 1987, in Gaza, importantly, of course, in light of what's happening there today, um, a uh, uh, an event seems to have been an accident, um, spurs uh, what comes to be known as the Palestinian Intifada, um, which is an attempt to um, uh, an, uh, an uprising that is an, an attempt to uh, shake off, uh, to use, that's what intifada means, a shaking off, shake off occupation uh, to uh, deliver a, a new reality for Palestinians. And uh, that takes everyone by surprise, um, including the PLO, which rushes to reconnect with Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza and, and isn't entirely successful. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, by the early 1990s, uh, the PLO, which has made the, the poor decision to uh, side with Iraq during the, the first Gulf War and is uh, deeply marginalized uh, by its former benefactors in the Gulf as a result, um, and which has also uh, been marginalized from um, circumstances in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, um, decides that uh, it needs an avenue in. And the uh, Madrid peace process, which began in 1991 and which the PLO was excluded from, had been moving in fits and starts toward a resolution. But for Palestinians, there was a real, uh, for the for the PLO, there was a real desire to find an avenue through which they could be directly involved. And Oslo provided that. From, uh, you've written about this. From your perspective, what was changing in the region that created the opening for the process to begin? Talking to me? Yes. Uh, well, there were tremendous changes. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, the end of the Cold War. Russia was uh, uh, neutralized. It no longer provided support uh, to uh, the enemies of Israel. Uh, America went into the Iraq. It was victorious. Israel was its ally, and its big brother was... Uh, on the winning side, and Israel was together with them. Uh, so this is, a, of course, a systemic change that influenced the thinking of the Israeli government, uh, particularly Rabin, 
that wanted to uh, negotiate always from a position of strength. So he was much stronger. Soviet Union was no longer okay, no longer uh, in, in the Middle East. Uh, and of course, uh, the uh, PLO was weak because uh, it uh, allied itself with Saddam Hussein, uh, despite the fact that uh, Israel preferred actually to negotiate what, what was called the insiders, the leaders of the Intifada uh, the, that lived in, in Judea and Samaria. Uh, but uh, eventually the PLO succeeded in sidelining the local leadership and uh, reached, uh, reached Oslo. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, I think uh, Rabin felt uh, that uh, the Israeli society uh, was tired and uh, couldn't uh, go on with, uh, with the conflict with the Palestinians and uh, wanted to try to find some way uh, to end the conflict. And uh, the, another important element in the equation was that the Israelis, particularly after the Intifada, uh, were uh, uh, moving uh, and preferred uh, what Israelis call, uh, still call separation. Basically, uh, we don't, Israelis don't want to uh, uh, be... Uh, uh, the military rulers of uh, and, uh, of the Palestinians, and we are ready for some kind of uh, uh, territorial compromise. Uh, of course, not the territorial compromise that the PLO had in mind, and mm. this is one of the reasons that yeah. the uh, was uh, stuck. We're looking back at the Oslo peace process when there was some optimism that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict could be resolved. We're joined by Ephraim Inbar, professor of political studies at Barlan University and the president of the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security. Omar Dejani, former senior legal advisor for the PLO's Negotiations Support Unit and professor of law at the University of Pacific's McGeorge School of Law, as well as Emily Bazelon, staff writer with The New York Times Magazine. Her pieces was peace ever possible. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're looking back at the Oslo peace process when there was some optimism that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict could be resolved peacefully. We're talking about how it broke down 
and what that history says about the prospects for peace now. We're joined by Emily Bazelon, staff writer with The New York Times Magazine. She moderated a roundtable of experts for a group discussion that was published in The New York Times called Was Peace Ever Possible? We're also joined by Ephraim Inbar, professor of political studies at Barline University, and Omar Dejani, who's now a professor of law at the University of the Pacific, but was a former senior legal advisor for the PLO's negotiation support unit. Um, I, Emily, one quick thing before we get into the signing of the accord. Um, you have in your roundtable of discussants also an American uh, negotiator. And I was wondering if you could sort of quickly describe how he saw the role of Americans within these this process. Yeah, sure. So uh, Dan Kurtzer, who was one of the negotiators, was part of this uh, group. And he talked about how in the early 90s in the State Department, when James Baker was um, George H.W. Bush's secretary of state, it looked like there was this moment where there could be a breakthrough um, because of the Gulf War and the first intifada. There was pressure on both the PLO and on Israel. And so that was the joining of the um, Madrid Peace Conference. Um, but the Madrid Peace Conference, the talk stalled partly because the PLO wasn't there, partly because it was a joint Israeli-Jordanian delegation and the Palestinians wanted their own independent representation. So that leads to the back channel of Oslo. And the Americans are not really a part of that. They kind of show up after the parties together have hammered out this declaration of principles. And that's how you get to the White House lawn. Uh Then I think after that, there are questions about, you know, whether the U.S. was enough of a neutral arbiter going Mm -hmm. forward. But let's stay in that moment. Let's stay in the handshake moment. Many people may remember this. You know, 30 years ago, Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat, Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, shaking hands on the White House lawn, pledging to work together for peace and signing this uh, first accord. Um, First, we're going to hear Yasser Arafat. um, This is through translator and what he was saying about the agreement. Our people do not consider that exercising the right to self-determination could violate the rights of their neighbors or infringe on their security. Rather, putting an end to their feelings of being wronged and of having suffered an historic injustice is the strongest guarantee to achieve coexistence and openness between our two peoples and future generations. Our two peoples are awaiting today this historic hope, and they want to give peace a real chance. Now let's hear Yitzhak Rabin's message on that historic day. Let me say to you, the Palestinians, we are destined to live together on the same soil, in the same land. We, the soldiers who have returned from battles stained with blood, we who have seen our relatives and friends killed before our eyes, we who have attended their funerals and cannot look into the eyes of of their parents, we who have come a la- who, have, who have come from a land where parents bury their children, we who have fought against you, the Palestinians, we say to you today, 
in a loud and a clear voice, enough of blood and tears, enough. You know, Omar Dejani, you know, in this moment, listening back to these messages about sort of peaceful intent and the moving a process forward, like, how do you react now? You know, I can't help but remember when I heard those words, I was a first year law student. We were all gathered in the lounge at, at my law school, um, watching on television what was happening on the White House lawn. And uh, in that moment, I remember incredible excitement and optimism in the room. And I felt it too. I thought, okay, we've turned a corner. Um, uh, peace is just around the bend. Um, now, that was before I had actually had occasion to read and then later to, to study uh, the agreement that was signed that day and then the subsequent agreements that elaborated on it. And I think in those agreements were the seeds of some of the trouble that arose later. Um, mm. But that at that juncture um, and in the weeks that followed when Palestinians would put flowers in, in um, uh, the uh, mouths of uh, guns of Israeli soldiers where um, uh, Israelis uh, demonstrated um, in favor of, of peace, um, there was a sense of what could be. And I am deeply nostalgic for that moment, mm. um, even as, and this is a topic for another moment, maybe, mm -hmm. uh, I still see possibility for it today. Mm -hmm. Ephraim, I mean, you can hear it in Rabin's remarks that this was a huge shift for former military leader. I mean, you wrote a book about Rabin and security and his transition from kind of a warrior to, to peacemaker and his con continuing concern about security. I mean, how did Rabin travel so far? Like, what do you think brought him there? Fram, can you hear me? Rabin was always ready for uh, what Israelis call the Zionist movement called uh, partition. Uh, he was never a part of uh, the ideological uh, stream uh, that uh, believed that uh, all land of Israel should be under uh, Jewish control. So uh, I don't think it was a big change. The big change for him was not the willingness for a territorial uh, compromise, but the willingness uh, to negotiate with the PLO. Mm. He always was in favor of uh, having uh, Jordan as a partner, as a more reliable partner. He called the PLO uh, many occasions a cancer in, uh, in the Middle East. And this was uh, a change. And he was a, a pragmatic person. He realized that uh, King Hussein is not going to negotiate with him. And uh, the insiders, uh, the insiders of the Palestinian national movement uh, that I mentioned before, uh, don't have the power to negotiate because they are afraid of the PLO. So he negotiated with the PLO. By the way, he sent before 93 several times uh, emissaries to the PLO to try to reach an agreement, but it didn't work out. So uh, it was not such a big change uh, for him. And uh, we have to remember that Rabin uh, was a skeptic. And uh, for him, peace uh, is not what uh, most Americans understand by this term. For him, peace, and he said it often, it was basically armed peace. Uh, because uh, he understood that uh, 
we live in the Middle East and uh, no, uh, the, no Arab state or no national movement can offer Israel uh, better relations than the Arabs have among themselves. And they used to follow this part and parcel of the rules of the game. He understood it. But he was really uh, willing to give it uh, a chance, the, particularly because it was uh, an interim agreement. He, he had this Kissingerian approach that we have to go through an incremental process to make sure that uh, our partner for peace really delivers. And uh, he was disappointed. Emily, what is in the accord? Like when we when we talk about it, we've kind of made a few references to it, but maybe you could kind of walk us through the, the key points. Yeah, sure. So um, Israel agreed to represent the PLO as the represent, uh, Israel agreed to recognize the PLO as the representative of the Palestinian people. And that addressed, I think, what Ephraim was just talking about in terms of the previous suspicion of the PLO. The Arafat, on behalf of the Palestinian people, recognized the state of Israel and agreed not to use violence um, as a tactic going forward. And so that was asymmetrical in itself because there wasn't a declaration by Israel of recognizing a Palestinian state. And there was not an idea in the accord in 1993 that the two-state solution was the end goal. Instead, there were promises of interim agreements to have some kind of elected authority in um, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip that would have some kind of um, authority over Palestinian people there. But it wasn't stated at that point that the result of that ultimately would be a state, though I think there was some um, idea, especially on the part of the Palestinians, that that should be and perhaps um, was kind of recognized as an outcome, even though it wasn't written down. Yeah, Omar, as, as Emily mentions that, was it essentially that Palestinian negotiators felt as if, okay, it's not written in, but we've more or less shaken hands on it, that this is the path we're going down? I think that was their hope. I think that uh, there was the sense that once we are there on the ground, um, once we begin this process, uh, its inevitable outcome will be the two-state solution that the world has long promised us. And they also received assurances orally in conversations with some of those who were involved in the, in the talks that, for example, it, uh, Jewish settlements in the West Bank um, and Gaza Strip would not expand during that time. Um, uh, assurances that were not translated into clear commitments in the written agreements and um, and that were subsequently violated very substantially on the ground, uh, which produced a lot of um, uh, uh, consternation among Palestinians. And I think that uh, there, there was an insufficient understanding of the jurisdictional scheme that they were actually consenting to. There weren't uh, many lawyers involved in the Palestinian team at that juncture. And uh, I think there was a lack of awareness that what they were actually getting during the interim period was a commitment to very little control over small parts of the West Bank. Um, and uh, the rest was left very vague. And Palestinians figured that actors like the United States would step in to fill in the gaps uh, to ensure that the process was moving fairly. And they were disappointed on that front. Yeah. Emily, 
you had a wide variety of viewpoints in your discussion. Obviously, we've got two folks from it, but you talked to, to many more people. How did other people or other sort of points on the, the spectrum view the accord on the early days? Were there people who were very pessimistic or people who were you know, wildly optimistic? Yeah, I had someone from Peace Now, um, Avishai Margalit, and he talked about how he was skeptical from the beginning. He didn't want to be skeptical. He really hoped it would work. But he worried that the Palestinians were going to be disappointed because they weren't getting the second state, the state that they expected. And there's also this unfortunate um, coincidence in which not because of Oslo, but at the same time, there are more movement restrictions on Palestinians. Um, They have to start getting permits. There are more border checkpoints if they want to come into um, within Israel, within what's called the Green Line that marks the 1948 borders with the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And that led to a lot of frustration. And there also are economic um, developments in the 90s that favor Israel more than the Palestinians. So there are economic improvements in the West Bank and Gaza, but there is a much deeper um, investment economically in Israel. Um, and that, that again, there's a kind of inequality there that affects Palestinians and they become more pessimistic over time. That was something another participant, um, Khalil Shakaki, who's done lots of lots of polling, is being able to show is that the Palestinians start to say, hey, wait a second, what are we getting out of this? And the settlements also contribute to that. Um, and then on the Israeli side, it's always hard to, to answer sh- in a short no, way. No, no, no. <laughs> Thank you. On the Israeli side, there's a lot of concern about suicide bombings, which become more prevalent in the 90s. And then I think a crucial factor that, you know, one has to mention is that in November 1995, which is pretty early in this process, Yitzhak Rabin is assassinated mm-hmm. by a right-wing Jewish settler and or a right-wing Israeli. And that has a profound effect, too, going forward. There's a lot of mourning in Israel in a sense that, you know, Rabin, who is Mr. Security, his absence becomes important um, for the problems going forward. Mm. We will uh, get to that in just one sec. We're looking back at the Oslo peace process when there was some optimism that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict could be resolved. We're joined by Emily Bazelon, a staff writer with the New York Times Magazine, who moderated a large roundtable of experts for a group discussion that was called Was Peace Ever Possible? We're also joined by Omar Dejani, former senior legal advisor for the PLO's Negotiation Support Unit, a professor of law at the University of the Pacific's McGeorge School of Law, and Ephraim Inbar, who's professor of political studies at Bar Ilan University and the president of the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and security. What questions do you all have about Oslo and why it failed? You can give us a call. The question, the number is 866-733-6786. The email address is forum at kqed.org. And of course, you can find us in all the digital places as well, where we're KQED Forum. Uh, Ephraim, I'm, let's go to you on the assassination of Rabin. How much do you think that changed the on the ground realities of this negotiation? Or do you see it as that there were larger forces at work that might have broken down the process anyway? 
First of all, obviously, the failure of the Palestinians to deliver security, as Rabin demanded, was and still is the main reason for no reconciliation between uh, uh, the Zionist uh, movement and the Palestinian national movement. Uh, but I, I must say that uh, Rabin's murder had just the opposite uh, effect. It kept uh, the, what's called the peace process alive. Uh, because uh, if I remember, you know, the polls, I ran polls at that time, uh, Rabin uh, was bound to lose the elections uh, because uh, the public no longer supported uh, the, the peace process. And actually, uh, the tragedy actually saved, uh, to some extent, uh, the, the peace camp uh, who uh, could run for more uh, in, in, in the Israeli electorate and win elections once in a while. But uh, I think that uh, Rabin, uh, and I know that Rabin considered uh, sending Arafat back to Tunis uh, because uh, he didn't deliver security. Uh, also, I, we must uh, mention uh, in 94, uh, Arafat made a famous uh, speech in Johannesburg uh, basically uh, comparing the peace process uh, to an uh, early uh, Islamist uh, event in which uh, uh, the Prophet Muhammad violated an agreement with the Jewish tribe. Uh, and this, is, uh, this was a comparison he made to the peace process, which uh, alerted many suspicious Israelis. There are many Israelis that were very suspicious of the process. And... Uh, it proved uh, to many that uh, basically uh, what we see uh, is uh, what was called the two-stage uh, strategy. Uh, take what you can, establish a territorial base in, uh, in what the Palestinians call the homeland and continue the struggle against Israel. So uh, this was uh, something that uh, was uh, very harmful to the process and eroded much of the willingness of the Israelis to take chances. We'll come back to Omar Dejani. That was Ephraim Inbar, professor of political studies at Barlan University, also joined by Emily Bazelon. We're talking about the Oslo peace process and how it broke down. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're joined by Omar Dejani, former senior legal advisor for the PLO's Negotiation Support Union, a professor of law at the University of the Pacific's McGeorge School of Law, Ephraim Inbar, professor of political studies at Bar Ilan University and president of the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security. Also joined by Emily Bazelon, staff writer with the New York Times Magazine, who moderated a roundtable of experts for a group discussion that was published called Was Peace Ever Possible? Ephraim and Omar were two of the discussants there. I I did want to, Omar, I wanted to, to bring you into this discussion. I mean, you begin to enter as a participant into all this, not just someone who's kind of watching what's happening. And... As you watch the late 1990s play out, like how, how are you seeing the, the evolution of the process? Uh, I, I arrived there in 1999, um, but before I describe sort of my experiences, what were called permanent status negotiations began, I just wanted to circle back to one um, point that Ephraim made um, that I think it's important to address. Um, Ephraim uh, uh, suggested that what the Palestinians had failed to do was deliver security to Israel. And I think that listeners should bear in mind that there is an asymmetry here as well. Um, uh, The Palestinian Authority was engaged in security cooperation um, with Israel through those years and continues to to this point. Um, But its capacity to deliver security is constrained by a range of things, including its very limited jurisdiction. Um, uh, It had security control over Uh, 20% of the West Bank and not even all of the Gaza Strip during the period that we're talking about. And its ability to deliver that was deeply eroded by both some of the security incidents emerging from um, uh, Jewish Israelis, such as the massacre that occurred in the Ibrahimi Mosque, uh, the Tomb of the Patriarchs in in Hebron in 1994, Mm -hmm. um, and settler violence that proceeded subsequently plus settlement construction, which was something that the Israeli government was undertaking, um, not something that was just spontaneously uh, uh, unfolding on the ground. And so for Palestinians, their perception of the legitimacy of this process dipped in part because uh, they found that even while there were uh, security uh, 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 breaches of security for Israelis that were um, troubling and regretful, um, that there was uh, this process of the exact thing that they were negotiating over, um, how the land in the West Bank would be allocated between Israelis and Palestinians, was being um, addressed uh, unilaterally by the Israelis uh, with um, uh, settlements being built, uh, the cake uh, being eaten um, uh, uh, from there on the plate. And so by the time we arrived um, on the scene in 1999, as uh, finally, after years of these of this interim period, um, finally an opportunity to negotiate peace, to negotiate permanent status, as we as we called it. Um, we were very mindful of the mistakes that were made during the interim period, of the fact that an endpoint, a clear endpoint, hadn't been defined. Um, that even at the start of the process, Israel had yet to commit to the establishment of a Palestinian state in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, that um, there, one of the big issues in the agreements had been the lack of clarity with regard to 
what the commitments of each of the sides was, were going to be um, going forward. And then finally, of course, about what the role of third parties would be. The United States, as Aaron da David Miller, a, a former U.S. Uh, uh, advisor to five presidents, put it in an article in the Washington Post, the United States had consistently acted kind of as Israel's lawyer, to use his words, um, uh, pursuant to what they called a no surprises policy, where the United States placed everything before Israel, before it placed it on the table, any proposal on the table of Palestinians. So in the context of all of that, the Palestinians approached permanent status negotiations with hope, a measure of optimism, but also deep apprehension in view of what had happened during the, uh, the interim period. Yeah. Emily, uh, and we've talked about the American role a little bit. I mean, was there any thought among American negotiators that they should be doing something else? Like, to, was there a, a thought that that was the best approach to, to achieve some kind of outcome? You know, I'm, there was some debate and division among them, sure, but there's been such a close relationship between the U.S. and Israel historically. And, you know, when you zoom out into the larger regional context, of course, Israel feels itself surrounded by Arab nations that are hostile or indifferent. And so there's a kind of protectiveness among Israelis about what that feels like. And I think the U.S. Um, sees Israel in that context as well. That's a kind of reverse power dynamic and reverse asymmetry, right? So that in a sense, um, when you're thinking of the Israeli-Palestinian duality, Israel is stronger. But in this larger regional picture, um, Israel feels threatened. And the U.S. was very aware of that. Yeah. Um, we do have uh, a couple of um, factual questions kind of coming in. So, Emily, maybe I'll direct this one to you and then you can farm it out if you need to. Um, one listener writes, <laughs> when uh, Israel was established, were the displaced Palestinians offered compensation by the UN? I am not sure about the answer to that. I think the answer is probably no, but I'm going to try to punt that to either Omar or Ephraim, if that's okay. <laughs> I'm happy to address that. Yeah. In, in United Nations General Assembly Resolution 194, which was passed in December of 1948, um, what the General Assembly um, uh, uh, voted for um, was that Palestinians uh, be given the opportunity to return to their homes inside Israel, Palestinian refugees, um, or receive compensation. Um, uh, the way in which it's framed in the resolution is that the choice was for refugees, either return or compensation. In subsequent years, um, there's been an understanding that there would be a combination of return or combination and and compensation under refugee law um israel has has rejected return since since 1948 um that's not exactly true go ahead Ephraim. israel was willing to negotiate but the actually the arabs rejected this uh, uh, this resolution as they rejected all all uh, un resolutions that mentioned uh, the two-state solution, basically, the partition of 19, of November. It's today on November 29. Actually, the UN in 47 uh, uh, voted in favor of a two-state solution, which was rejected by the Palestinians and by the Arab world. And every other UN resolution uh, that uh, mentions the two-state solution, a Jewish state, 
and an Arab state, there was no mentioning of the Palestinian state at that time, was rejected by the Arabs. The Palestinian uh, liberation organization was willing to accept the partition of 47, which are different borders, only in uh, in 88, so 40 years later, when there were different, you know, a lot of uh, facts on the ground. So, uh, you know, uh, trying to mention this <laughs> resolution, which was rejected by the Arabs, it's ridiculous. Uh, Emily, I'm, I'm pretty sure you encountered, you know, these differences when you were working on the story how did how do you try like when you when you hear what we just heard people you know with with strongly held beliefs about what happened that differ um how have you tried to make sense of that for yourself you know i think often it's about which facts you include and which ones you leave out and so i tried hard in this roundtable discussion to include the facts that each side, the different participants thought were the most important so that you can see them next to each other and kind of judge for yourself which matters. Um, You know, each side has a narrative that has a lot of true facts in it and sometimes leaves out the other facts that are less amenable to its version of history. And so, you know, myself, to try to understand this, I want to see all the facts and then kind of step back and think, okay, like what happened here? How can I understand the underlying conditions that have led to this, you know, intractable conflict and could they be surmounted? But I think it starts with having a kind of historical reckoning and and at least for me, a deeper understanding of how, what happened and how each side sees what's important. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe the biggest sort of looming question is what happens in, in Camp David, right? And whether... Uh, well, describe describe what happens at, at Camp David a little bit and the position uh, that the different sides sort of took about what happened there. Yeah. So in 1999, Ehud Barak is elected prime minister of Israel and he is replacing Bibi Netanyahu. Netanyahu is on the right. Barak comes in and he's a kind of heir to Rabin and the Labour Party. And he is eager for final status negotiations. He presses President Clinton to have a summit. Um, Barack wants to kind of have, you know, a big meeting where everybody comes together. The PLO is there. Yasser Arafat's there. They work it all out. And then he goes home and sells this to the Israeli public. And so there is this two week summit famously at Camp David. And the Israelis see this. Barack sees this as he is making lots of concessions. Um, They are willing to have a Palestinian entity, a state on Um, Most of the land, you know, over 90 percent, they start trying to figure out what to do about Jerusalem. Um, They're really, from the Israeli point of view, making tremendous concessions. But the Palestinians don't see it that way. Um, I'm sure Omar and Ephraim will have more thoughts about this. Mm -hmm. But my understanding is that um, they don't see this as enough. Um, One way that the American who participated in our dialogue, the diplomat, put it was that this huge concession from Israel still did not meet the kind of absolute minimum from Arafat's point of view. And Arafat doesn't counter offer. There's no um, effort to kind of come back in the negotiation. And so Clinton, the Americans and Barack, um, they all get very frustrated and they kind of leave feeling like, well, we've come so far, but it's not enough. 
there are other efforts after that um, into the end of the Clinton administration. Um, Clinton puts out his own parameters. And so and they're um, more advantageous to the Palestinians. It's a better offer. But again, it's not accepted. And so, you know, from the point of view of Israelis, and I think the American diplomats, at least to a large extent, it's this sense of like a real missed opportunity. Um, but, you know, the Palestinians see it differently, as I'm sure Omar will talk about. And, um, and that's a dynamic that <laughs> you know, you can, I just wanted to understand why the different parties um, took the positions they did and then mm-hmm. also why they've come to see it so differently. Yeah. All right, Omar, you first here. Sure. So I think I, I, I think um, we've got to remember that um, going into the Camp David summit in July of 2000, um, uh, we had, barely scratched the surface of many of the issues that were being that were on the table. We had not had a single discussion uh, between the parties about negotiations, uh, excuse me, about refugees, for example. Mm-hmm. And so Arafat um, had said to the Americans, listen, we're not ready. Um, uh, there's a lot that we need to work through. Um, I'm worried if we go, um, you're going to blame me. And the Clinton administration assured him that he would not be blamed, um, assured him that uh, we needed to do this because Ehud Barak's um, coalition was in danger um, and uh, that we should that we should go forward with the talks. When we arrived there, what we encountered was not a single coherent proposal, but an array of ideas, again, which um, were in part presented by Ehud Barak, in part presented by the United States, um, apparently the United States was presenting ideas that Barack himself had initially presented. And the difficulty for us was this. Um, we had understood when we entered this process that um, uh, when we committed to a two-state solution with Israel assuming authority over 78% of what had been Palestine, leaving 22% to Palestinians, that we had made an enormous compromise at that juncture. And we had also signaled that there was going to be very significant compromise with regard to issues like refugees, security, uh, Jerusalem territory. But um, what we were being asked to do at Camp David was go even further. Um, And so just to cite one example, Israeli settlements at that juncture covered 2% of West Bank territory um, in 2000 in terms of their land area. Mm -hmm. And we were being asked to cede around 8%. And all of the places on Israeli maps where we were being asked to cede land were areas that were crucial to Palestine's ability to develop develop because of issues of contiguity, natural resources, and uh, the ability of uh, uh, the Palestinian state to uh, build uh, 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 avenues for trade um, uh, to the external world. And so as we looked at these maps, we said, we we don't see how this works. we were absolutely committed to continue talking, um, but what we what we didn't anticipate and we were disappointed by was that uh, the U.S. administration would turn around and say, oh, they were uncompromising and would do precisely what they promised they wouldn't do, which was to blame the Palestinians. I, Ephraim, we're getting down to the end of the show here, and I just, I, I wanted to ask you what you ended up taking away from the buildup and and collapse of this peace process, particularly, you know, with with reference to our present moment here. 
frankly, I think that this is uh, ethno-national conflict in which both sides still have a lot of energies to fight for. I think that the Palestinians are making mistakes in not accepting certain compromises and eventually they'll get even less in the future. Uh, and this is, of course, their strategy, their strategy and ours as well. And uh, as long as the two societies are uh, ready to fight for what's important, for example, Jerusalem is very important for us and we are ready to fight for it. Uh, I don't think that we'll see uh, a, a real peace or what Americans believe uh, peace is and not even our peace. Uh, we're going to, this conflict is continued to simmer at a variety of levels uh, of violence and uh, uh, eventually one side will get tired and uh, then uh, there will be uh, a more uh, pragmatic approach to try to uh, uh, find a modus vivendi. Yeah. Um, Omar, you know, of course, not all Israelis hold that same position. You know, Emily talked with Avishai uh, Margalit, who said about the current war, I've thought that only a catastrophe can bring a solution. I think this moment has the potential to be this kind of catastrophe. Do you think that a solution will arise from this moment? I hope so. I mean, I, I, I want listeners to be aware that there are folks, um, Israeli Jews and Palestinians who are working really hard together, even in these dark times to try to bring such a moment to pass. I, uh, I encourage folks to go on the website of a land for all, which is an organization that has been in existence for about 10 years, an initiative um, comprised of both uh, Jews and Palestinians living in Israel, Palestine, who believe in a two-state solution, but one um, embedded in a confederal union that um, is, a, uh, I think, a far better approach than the one that we were negotiating 20 years ago, because it takes seriously both sides' attachment to all of the land of Israel-Palestine. Um, it facilitates gradually freedom of movement and residence for Palestinians and Jews across the territory. Mm -hmm. And it provides a way of uh, addressing in a serious way the injustices of the last century, um, not just... Um, oh, uh, I'm going to have to cut in. We're coming down to our All last right. 15 yeah. seconds. No, I, 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 I appreciate you mentioning that. We've been looking back at the Oslo peace process with Omar Dejani, Ephraim Inbar, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.